I'm going to go ahead and pray. God, our Father, Lord, we praise You, we honor You, and we bless You this day. We thank You, Lord, that You are the Almighty God. Oh, Lord, that You hold the whole world in Your hands. That, God, this is Your world. God, it is Your creation. And that, Lord, You are bringing it to the end which You have designed it for. Oh, Lord, we praise You and we honor You for Your providence. We thank you, Lord, for your gracious love to us in the cross of our Lord Jesus. O Lord, that you sent him, Jesus, to be the Christ. We thank you. We thank you, Lord, for the precious blood of Jesus, which washes away all of our sins. God, we thank you. We are very grateful, Lord, for all that you have done for us in Christ We praise you. And Lord, today as we look into your word, we ask that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart that we might see and know and understand the glories of the cross and all that you have done there. We ask, God, that you would strengthen and encourage our faith that we might live lives as obedient children, lives that bless you, lives that glorify you, God. And so now we ask for your help. We ask for your strength. By the Holy Spirit, God, enlighten our our hearts. Enlighten our minds. Strengthen us in grace, in truth, in knowledge, and in love. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. So we've been uh, in a series on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and specifically talking about the atonement. And we have uh, been using the term atonement as uh, to define the whole scope of Christ's saving work. And so we've been going through this for many weeks now. And last week we ended having started on a section on the sufficiency of the atonement. And this is where I'm going to go ahead and pick up today. Uh, Having spent several weeks talking about the nature of the atonement, here we're going to talk about the sufficiency of the atonement, or is the atonement sufficient to accomplish the end for which God brought it? And of course we know the answer to that is a resounding yes. yes. Amen? Amen. However, the scripture has a lot to say about this, and then more than that, there's, there are many implications that can be drawn from this. And, uh, and, and just... To to speak of one very important implication is when we understand the sufficiency of the atonement, then we have the knowledge and the understanding to discern errors in teaching about the atonement, amen, of which there are many (laughs) and many, many uh, profound errors that the devil seems to keep reinventing down through the ages of church history to uh, uh, lead us astray from the simplicity of faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And so understanding then that the cross is sufficient to atone for our sins, and that the life of Jesus is sufficient to give us righteousness before God, we have this knowledge then by which we can discern the error. Well, last week as we... um, we, uh, spent a little bit of time talking about the sufficiency of the atonement and saying that uh, the work of the atonement opens the door for our relationship with God to be restored. And so that the atonement has brought about reconciliation between us and God. So that God himself is no longer estranged from us because of sin. And we are no longer alienated from God because of sin. Because the atonement has brought about reconciliation. In other words, it has restored our relationship to God. By taking away sin, God has removed the ground of alienation between us and him and thereby restored our relationship to him. This work was initiated by God who reconciled us to himself. It was the work of God. God is the one who worked the reconciliation. And so we looked, uh, for instance, at Romans 5, 8 through 11, which says this, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
And again, you see that for us, that, that vicarious sense. Jesus died for us personally. He died as a substitute, as a sacrifice in our place. Amen? And then verse 9, Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And here again, the scripture is speaking about the fact that we've been justified. And in a legal sense, we've been made right before God because of the blood of Christ and that this has saved us from the wrath of God. Amen? Amen. And then verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And here now the scripture says that this has brought about reconciliation, that our relationship with God has been restored. We're no longer alienated from God. God is no longer estranged from us because of sin, but we have been reconciled, it says, through the death of his son. And it says this in the past tense, much more having been reconciled. This is something that Christ has already wrought He's already worked this on the cross. God has in Christ reconciled us, past tense, to himself. Amen? Through the death of his son. And this, it says then, we shall be saved by his life. And remember that there's really two sides of justification. Remember that there is the, the, um, the fact that the penal sanctions of the law have been met by the death of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, But then furthermore, the righteousness or the positive side of justification, uh, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. It has been credited to us by faith so that his life and his death work together to justify us before God. Amen? Amen. And, And so this is what it says. Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And verse 11, and not only this, But we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And so through through Jesus, we now hope in our future redemption, the redemption of our bodies when we'll be completely delivered from sin. And we rejoice in, even exulting in our Lord Jesus Christ and in what God has done for us through Him. Amen? It's a glorious thing. And so we see then that all these things that have been accomplished by God through Christ in the atonement have reconciled God to us and us to God. And our relationship has been restored. And this is what the scripture says in Colossians 1, 21 and 22. I'm sorry, verse 22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. Amen? Amen. What glorious words. What, what comprehensive words describing what God has done. Amen? In the cross. And, and again here, uh, uh, by Christ's physical body through death. Amen? Or back in, in Romans 5, uh, 10, where we just read, through the death of his son. Or Romans 5, 9, justified by His blood. Or verse 8, Christ died for us. Amen? Amen. Glorious, glorious truth. Through Jesus' redemptive death upon the cross, we have been fully reconciled to God. This is because Jesus fully met the demands of God's righteousness in the law for our sins. Having paid the penalty the law demanded for sins, but also having earned a positive righteousness before God by his perfect obedience to the preceptive requirements of the law. And here I I have a quote from John Murray who comments on this, and he says, Christ, as the vicar of his people, came under the curse and condemnation due to sin, and he also fulfilled the law of God in all of its positive requirements. In other words, he took care of the guilt of sin and perfectly fulfilled the demands of righteousness. He perfectly met both the penal and the preceptive requirements of God's law. Therefore, 
The demands of the law have been fully met in Christ, and this is the ground of our reconciliation to God. So, you know, remember this. When you think about what, what Christ has done in fulfilling the law, okay? He not only died to, to, uh, to, to meet the penal sanctions of the law, right? And remember how we describe those? Uh, how in the law, with various sins, if you will, the law would, would uh, describe a penalty that was inflicted upon the, the guilty party, right? And, and, uh, and, and so that the law has these requirements of justice for sin. And those, if you will, are the penal sanctions of law. And, and of course, we know that ultimately, if you sin at one point, you're guilty of the whole law. Amen? And so the Bible puts it in New Testament very clearly, the wages of sin is death. Amen? And so the penal sanction of the law for sin is death. Amen? And Christ has met that requirement of the law. But furthermore, the law has preceptive requirements. Remember how we talked about this, how the law many times in the Old Testament is described as the precepts of God. Amen? And that the precepts are, 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 uh, are, are very simply just uh, demands of righteousness that God requires. Like uh, where he says in, in the Shema, he says, uh, that Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy mind and with all thy soul. Amen? And, and that uh, uh, there is a requirement of God. God requires us to love Him and to walk in all of His ways and to obey His commandments. Amen? These are perceptive requirements of the law. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The law requires us to love our neighbor. Amen? And so not only do we fail by violating uh, the law, so that we're guilty of the sanctions it imposes upon us for that, right? But we're also guilty of failing to meet the perceptive requirements of the law, right? You see that? So if you will, there's these two sides of of Christ fulfilling the law, both in its negative sanctions because of sin, right? But also, if you will, those things which we have omitted, the sins of omission which we have which we have, uh, uh, you know, not met the perceptive requirements that the law has demanded of us. And so Jesus has fully met both of those, okay? Now, this, the scripture says, because Christ has met these demands of the law, both negative and positive, if you will, uh, that this has brought about our reconciliation before God. Namely, because on the legal grounds, right, remember, it is a what? A law. This is a legal situation here. But then in legal terms, the Bible describes us as having been justified before God. And so that there is a very real and legal sense in the courtroom of God that we have been justified. Justification is the act of God declaring us righteous now based on the merits of Christ through faith in Him. This means that we have a foreign righteousness that is not our own, but is ours by faith in Christ. And so when the Bible speaks about our justification, it speaks about it in terms of uh, a righteousness that we have that does not belong to us. I'm sorry, a righteousness that we have that we did not merit ourselves, that we did not earn ourselves. It's a righteousness not our own. And of course, we're going to spend some time, many weeks, talking about justification when we get to the section on the message of Jesus Christ or the gospel. Um, we're going to talk about justification in detail there. But here, let's just look at a couple of passages of Scripture, Philippians 3, 9, and 10. And here, Paul is speaking about his faith in Christ, and he says that, I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And so Paul says, this righteousness I have is a righteousness that is not my own, he says. But it is the righteousness of God. It's God's righteousness. You understand? (laughs) 
It is that righteousness which God possesses of Himself. Amen? And, and so that the Scripture says that this righteousness comes from God and it is on the basis of faith. That this righteousness is based on faith. So we, ha- we get a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Amen? Okay. And so then again in Romans 3, verses 21 through 24, this is expressed. And there it says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even, look what it says here, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And so here the scripture says, it's a righteousness, uh, the righteousness of God, right? Of God for all those who believe. Right? And there the scripture says that This righteousness that we receive, which is based on faith, for all those who believe, we get as a what? As a gift. Right? This here in Romans 3, the scripture describes justification in verse 24. Look at it. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace. That justification is a gift of God that comes by grace through faith. Amen? You see how clear the Bible speaks about this? How could this point be missed? Right? (laughs) And think of how the devil has gone to such great lengths to deceive us in regard to this point. Remember how we've said that justification is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls, as Luther has said and that this was the central issue in the Christian faith, this idea of justification or, uh, or justification before God. Amen? Which is why this is also the central message of the gospel. And, and, and why there's so many reinventions of the gospel when the gospel uh, uh, brings all these ideas and concepts that are available to people in Christ without dealing with the sin issue. Amen? Because the centrality of the gospel message is the fact that Jesus is the dying Savior, God, very God, dying on the cross to pay the penalty for sin and to also grant us by His life the very righteousness of God. Amen? And all of those issues are are theological issues involved with our relationship to Holy God because of sin. Amen? And so when, when the gospel is missing this aspect... Of, of dealing with the sin problem. It is no gospel at all. Amen? And so it's important then to understand that this justification is a gift that comes by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ and the redemption that came through His life and death. Amen? Okay. So then, this is good news. Amen? The fact that we have been reconciled to God. And we have been, the scripture says, justified by His blood. And that this is given to us as a gift of God's grace. But not only that, it is the righteousness of God. It's God's righteousness. It's not our own righteousness. And this, family, is why it is sufficient. Amen? God did in Christ exactly what He intended to do from all eternity. Amen? Christ came and perfectly fulfilled God's plan of redemption so that we are, in fact, redeemed. Amen? And this makes the sufficiency of the atonement absolutely clear. The atonement is sufficient. 
This life and death of Christ is so complete before God that it not only meets the legal demands of God's law, but even cleanses and washes away the defilement of our sins so as to purify us before God's spotless holiness so that we are fully sanctified. Do you recall this uh, scripture we just looked at in Colossians 1.22? There it says, He has uh, reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to do what? To present you holy in his sight. And, and then the scripture goes on and describes that holiness that we have in the sight of God. What is it? It says there, without blemish and free from accusation. Amen? Amen. Glorious truth. Absolutely glorious truth. In Hebrews, in chapter 10 and verse 14, the scripture there says that, For by one offering, that is one sacrifice... That is the death of Christ. For that, by that one offering, it says, He has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Okay, and and there the idea is is that we have a positional sanctification before God because of the offering or the sacrifice of Jesus. In other words, the the sacrifice of Jesus cleansed us from the defilement of sin so that we are sanctified, and the scripture says even perfected forever. Okay? So this doesn't mean that we're never going to sin again, right? Because we're in a process of being sanctified, right? Part of the plan of, of God's plan of redemption is to sanctify us, right? As we eagerly await the coming of the Lord when we will be glorified, right now we're in this process of sanctification where we're, we are taking on a practical holiness and we are being conformed into the image of Christ, becoming more and more like Him and more and more being separated from our sin so that there's an increasing frequency of righteous activity and righteous thinking and righteous words that are going on in our life and a decreasing frequency of sin and defilement. Amen? But there is a very real sense in which we have been sanctified, if you will, forever by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we have been cleansed, we have been washed, so that we are what? Holy in His sight, free from blemish, and free from accusation, so that there is therefore now no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? So if you will, not only have we been justified, but in that justification, and in that work that Christ did in the atonement, we have been sanctified, we've been cleansed, we've been made holy and set apart unto God. Amen? So, so much so, that the scripture says that we have become the very temple of God. So that now holy God lives inside of our being. Amen? And God does not dwell in an unholy temple. Amen? This speaks of the sanctifying work of the sacrifice of Christ. Okay, so then. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30 and 31 says this, But by His doing, that is, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so here, what 1 Corinthians is saying, is that Jesus Himself is our righteousness. Amen? Remember, it's a righteousness that's not our own, but is on the basis of faith to all those who believe. Amen? And so that we receive the very righteousness of God, who is himself, Jesus the Christ. Jesus is our righteousness. Amen? But look what it says here. He is also our what? Our sanctification. He is our cleansing from the defilement of sin. And because of this cleansing, we have been set apart unto God. A kingdom of priests and servants unto the Lord. Amen? And so, if you will, <clears throat> this Christ Jesus himself is our sanctification. Amen? So I ask you, 
If Christ has cleansed us from the defilement of sin, becoming our sanctification, just how clean are we? And is the cleansing of Christ sufficient? Amen? Glorious, glorious reality. This justification and sanctification before God is so complete that it has removed any and all condemnation of God from us so that we are set free from the tyranny of the law's demands which a sinner can never meet. You understand? When you're in your sins, you are under the tyranny of the law because the law is constantly and continually condemning you to death. Amen? But the scripture says that Christ is the end of the law for all those who believe. That we have now received a righteousness of God which is fully complete and has utterly fulfilled the requirements of the law, both penal and preceptive. Right? And more than that, we've been cleansed, we've been washed from the defilement of sin. Our guilt has been expiated, our guilt has been removed. Amen? So that the scripture says in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. This is because Jesus himself is our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption and our wisdom from God. Amen? The law now becomes for us the very wisdom of God. Teaching us and showing us how to behave, how to act, how to please God. And Jesus lived it out in perfect practice so that we have a model. Amen? But the tyranny of the demands of the law, from from this we have been released in Christ Jesus. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Jesus, then, is the consummation of God's law for us. And we now rest in freedom from its demands. We now have perfect freedom to obey the law. Because if and when we fail, Christ is our righteousness. And we can be resolved once again to obey it. Without having the penalty of death inflicted upon us. You understand? Now, as a believer in Christ... What happens when you sin? Is the law there looming over your back? To smite you to death once again? No, it's not. Is it not? It's not. Why? Because Christ is our righteousness. Amen? For all those who believe. And we've been justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption that came in Christ. Amen? So the law no longer has this ability to loom over us the penalty of death. Every moment is new for the Christian. Every moment is new. Family, that is a glorious reality. That is a glorious reality. And it ought to make us hungry, even thirsty, to obey the law of God. Amen? Amen. Romans 10.4 says this, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Amen? Amen? The scripture could not be more clear about this point. <coughs> of course, there's a lot that could be said. And there is a lot that has been said about this issue. And this is simply a brief overview of these things. But, consider this. We must conclude then from these things that Jesus' life and death are sufficient to redeem us from sin and reconcile us to God. I mean, if the scripture speaks of these things, that this righteousness is a foreign righteousness, it's the very righteousness of God that we now possess and that Jesus himself is this righteousness and that Jesus himself is this sanctification and that we have been sanctified and holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation, the scripture says. 
I would like to suggest to you, as the apostles did, that the life and death of Jesus are sufficient to redeem us from sin and reconcile us to God. Amen? Amen. And, furthermore, that this reconciliation is final, complete, and eternal, so that nothing more is required to be justified or sanctified before God. Let me say that again. This reconciliation is final, complete, and eternal, so that nothing more is required to be justified or sanctified before God. Except this, that you remain in the faith. <coughs> Amen? And family, we know that this faith, even in, in and of itself, is the gift of God. Amen? That this faith is that which God has given us in regeneration. And that which God keeps us by His power. Amen? So that we persevere to the end. Amen? Amen. It says in Romans three twenty-seven and 28, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The fact of the matter is, there's nothing you can do to merit righteousness before God because you've already utterly failed. Amen? This is why this, this justification and this righteousness and this sanctification of God must be imputed to us through the life and death of Christ. He's the only one who can merit it. Amen? And again, as we've said many, many times, this is what sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. The righteousness that God requires is only met in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay. It is therefore imperative to recognize that many false distortions of the gospel which call people to some further obedience required than that of simple faith in Christ. We have to recognize these things. If we understand the atonement to be sufficient, we ought to recognize when someone is saying to us, no, you must do this other thing in order to be saved. And think of all the examples there are in, in all the perversions of the gospel. I'll give you a perfect example. How about the idea of baptismal regeneration? Right? Where, where certain men would teach that we must be baptized in order to be saved. Right? So now we've reduced salvation to this single work that a man can do by being dunked in the water. Right? When, when we know, in fact, that baptism is simply a symbol... Right? That we're identifying in faith with the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance from our sins and in His death and in His power to live a life as a new creation in God. Amen? Amen. And, and so, if you will, family, it's faith in Christ that saves. And, and baptism is simply an identification with that faith, with that person of Christ Himself. Amen? And, and think about all the, all the perversions of, of the gospel. Uh, every other world religion has a system of works by which we merit the righteousness of God. In some, some way or some shape, they're, they're teaching us that the power lies latent within you to, to achieve the favor of God. Amen? And God says, no way. It is a hopeless and a desperate plight that you are in. Amen? Hopeless. Absolutely hopeless. Destitute and desperate plight apart from Christ. For there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Amen? <clears throat> Jesus made this really clear. 
It is in Christ in whom we have believed. And he himself is our righteousness before God. And we have received him by simple faith. This is what Jesus said about works-based salvation. John 6, 28. He said this. They said therefore to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. It is by faith that we are justified before God and obtain his righteousness and his sanctification. Amen? There are no works that we can perform that somehow merit Christ for us. Rather, if we look beyond Christ to find merit before God, we forfeit Christ and this is the ultimate offense to God. Think about what it says to God who sent his son to be our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. Think what an offense it is to God to, to, to say, no, that's not quite enough for me, God. I've got to do these other things. That is, a, that is an offense to a holy God. Galatians 5, Paul addresses this with the Judaizers in the Galatian church. And this is what he says to the Galatian church. He says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Here's what he's telling them. He's saying, stand firm in your faith. Stand firm in your trust in Jesus and in his favor before God. Stand firm in your faith that Jesus is your righteousness before God. And he says, don't be caught up again in a yoke of slavery. What kind of yoke of slavery? Slavery of obedience to the law, which is what the Judaizers were, were, were telling the church. They were perverting the gospel. They were saying, you must do this, you must do that, you must be circumcised, right? You must keep the, uh, the, uh, the, the Levitical uh, 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 ceremonial law in order to be saved, right? And of course, many different kinds of perversions. They would have had of such a doctrine. But the point was, you can do all these other things apart from faith in Christ, right? In order to be saved. And, and Paul says, no. He says, stand firm in your faith. He goes on. He says, behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. He says, if you do that, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Here the Bible talks about falling away from grace. What does it mean? Well, it's right there in the black and white. If you seek to be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. You've offended God. In the highest point, in the highest degree, you've said that the justification that comes by the blood of Christ is not sufficient. And if you seek to be justified by the law, you're going to be sadly disappointed in the day of judgment. Because it will not be sufficient. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in God's sight. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. The law explains to us what sin is. Jesus fulfills the law and is our righteousness in and of himself. Amen? Okay. So, this idea, family, look. This idea of seeking... Our own righteousness before God, as I said, is the theme of every world religion. Listen, this was the tragic mistake of Israel, which ultimately brought the judgment of God upon them. Romans 9, verses 31 and following says this. It says, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. 
For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For listen here. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You see, this was Israel's tragic mistake. This is what the scripture describes that they did. They pursued the righteousness of God through obedience to the law. When the prophets are here testifying to them saying, He who believes in him will not be disappointed. Amen. And that the righteous will live by faith. The tragic mistake of Israel was that they sought to establish their own righteousness before God rather than freely receiving God's righteousness which he provides. Amen? Is this not pictured in the proto-evangel when Adam and Eve seek to cover themselves with the fig leaf of their own righteousness and God provides a sacrifice to cover them? Of course, we know this is all through the Old Testament. This type, this shadow of the righteousness which is in God, uh, in Christ, that comes by faith in Him, is pictured again and again and again in the Old Testament. However, they sought to establish their own righteousness before God, and they wound up under the judgment of God. <coughs> then, when the New Testament church begins, this tremendous heresy of Judaism, which was a, a, a vicious attack against the gospel in the first century and ever since then, right, was there again trying to tell the church, no, you have to establish your own righteousness before God. And this is why Paul wrote the, le- the letter of Galatians. The main theme in Galatians is to teach the Christians that It is not by the works of the law that we're justified before God, but it is by faith. Justification is by faith. Amen? Well, we do not seek to be justified before God by the works of the law, but rather, because we have been justified by Christ, we now live by faith in Him, continually looking to His life and death on the cross as our righteousness before God. And this is how Paul describes it. This is how Paul describes this this, uh, this uh, uh, life that he has of faith in Christ to these Galatians who were seeking to uh, obtain their own righteousness before God through obedience to the law. He says this to him in chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. You see what he's saying? He says, I now live in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. He's my righteousness before God. And if if I could have uh, obtained righteousness some other way, then why did Christ die? Amen? You want a great question for evangelism? Here it is. Say to your party there, say, hey, have you ever thought about why did Jesus have to die? I mean, let's just get right to the meat of it. Let's just go right to the cross. Why did Jesus have to die? Because there's no other way to be justified before a holy God because of sin. Amen? Amen? Not only that, family, but look what Paul says. He says, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. This is how Paul lives. He lives in Christ. He lives by faith. He lives in the death of Jesus. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. I'm dead with Christ. I died with Christ. I live with Christ. I'm exalted. I'm at the right hand of God in heavenly places. I'm reconciled to God. Right? His life, he says, he lives his life in Christ. 
and by Christ and for Christ. Jesus is His life. Amen? And Jesus is our life. Amen? John 3, 14 says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in Him have eternal life. Could God have made it more simple? I understand it's impossible to be saved. But it's certainly not complex. Are you with me? At least not in what is required of us. What is required? Look to Christ and be saved. Amen? God has lifted up Christ and he said, Here, be saved. Look. Have faith, trust in Christ. In Christ. There is your healing from the vicious venom of the serpents. Amen? The law then is a display of what Christ's life looks like in practice so that we learn how to walk in his spirit and fulfill the righteousness of the law toward God and other people. Obedience to to the law is something we greatly desire as a result of being justified by God through Christ because we are motivated by gratitude for what he has done and a desire to honor him with our life. So we're we're not setting the law completely aside. We're simply saying it's not the grounds of our reconciliation before God. But it is the expression of the very character and nature of God. And, And for that, oh, how we love thy law. The law for us is our delight. Is it not? It's our meditation day and night. We look at the law and we learn all about how to live our life. We learn about how to practice the righteousness of God. We learn about how to be crucified with Christ and walk in Him and walk in all of His ways. And we learn what His commandments are. We get great insight from the law. However, it is not and never will be the grounds of our justification and sanctification before God. We have become recipients of the love and mercy of God in spite of our life of sin and disobedience. You see, salvation has come to us by the mercy of God. It was God who reached down and helped us who cannot help ourselves. Amen. Titus 3, verses 4 and following. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see what the scripture says here? Look, that we were saved not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. We were saved by God, not by us or anything we have done. Amen? And the salvation that God has wrought in Christ is sufficient to save. Amen? What good hope we have in Christ. Amen? We have been released. This is what the scripture says. We have been released from our sins by the blood of Jesus Christ because of his love. Revelation 1.5 And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us, and released us from our sins by His blood. You see that? Scripture says we've been released. 
from our sins. Of course, we just spent seven weeks talking about in depth what that really means. Amen? I suppose if you're not convinced by now, you ought to do the thing you should have done at first. (laughs) Amen? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's what the scripture declares. So then, what about then the results and the benefits of the atonement? The results and the benefits of the atonement. So I'd like to suggest that we could probably spend five years talking about this and we wouldn't even make a dent in it. Are you with me? In other words, the, the results and the benefits of the atonement are eternal and infinite. Okay? But just in brief, just in brief, uh, let's try and just get a grasp on, on what, what this has brought about for us. The atonement is the ground of God's blessing upon us and the very fountain from which flows all of the riches of his grace toward us. Here we are saying that the atonement is the wellspring of all benefit and blessing of God toward mankind. It is because of Christ's atoning work that God can even look upon the world and mankind with all of its sin and rebellion against him and sustain their life until such time as he puts everything in its proper place and order. The scripture makes statements like this in Romans 2, 4 and following. It says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance, and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. You see, right now, God is forbearing patiently with sinners on the earth. But it will not last forever. Right? Because they are what? Storing up wrath for the day of the righteous judgment of God. When he will render to every man according to his deeds. Amen? And the fact of the matter is, is that this forbearance and this patience and this kindness of God, Paul says, don't let that fool you. Don't let that fool you. Okay? Because you're storing up wrath for yourself. And, and so the idea is, is that um, how is it that God does this? How is it that God bears patiently with sinners? Why are we not consumed? Have you ever considered that? Well, let me suggest that it's because of God's plan of redemption and how he's working it out in the course of time and space and in the course of human history. Okay? But we, we all know this idea that the common grace of God toward all the world, right, is, is, is even uh, capable only because of the atonement that is in Christ Jesus. Otherwise, we'd be toast. Are you with me? So <clears throat> think about this idea. The atonement, the atonement is the ground of common grace. Common grace is that grace or favor that God dispenses to unbelieving sinners who do not come to faith in Christ and be saved. In this common grace, God bears patiently with sin until such time that he brings it to justice at the final judgment. In other words, God did not immediately bring judgment upon man when Adam and Eve sinned by destroying them, but instead patiently waited through the ages as he brought about his eternal purpose in Christ. Even now, he is still fulfilling his plan of redemption and bearing patiently with sin and sinners until such time that his purposes are completed. At that time, he will bring sin to its final justice and it will be eradicated from his kingdom and his people forever. Therefore, because God is fulfilling his eternal purpose in Christ through the atonement, He not only patiently bears with sin and sinners, but showers innumerable blessings upon them, which they have neither deserved, nor are they thankful for them. As it describes in Romans chapter 1, verse 20 and following. There it says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, 
so that they are without excuse. For all, for even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. You see, the scripture says they're without excuse that God has manifested Himself to them. And yet they don't give Him thanks. Yet they don't treat Him right. Amen? And so God is bearing patiently. He's bearing patiently. Even though his wrath is being revealed right before our very eyes. Amen. God gives even to the wicked and unbelieving all that they need to sustain their lives, giving them food and shelter, sunshine and rain, even their very life and breath, as Jesus describes to us in Matthew 5.44. He says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God, by his providence, even sustains the life of sinners and rebels. Amen? And this is described as God's patience, his forbearance, and his kindness in the scripture. Amen? Not only this, but God gives them the knowledge of himself, Romans 1.21. He gives them help in restraining evil through their conscience, Romans 2.15. And also through government, Romans 13.6. And also warns against sin and all of its destruction and death, Romans 6.23. Think about how God is manifesting his grace to the wicked. He, he gives them everything they need. They're not thankful. He warns them of impending doom. They disregard it. He even restrains the evil that they're creating so that it doesn't consume them through government. Amen? And through their own conscience. He's written the law in their heart. In fact, because God is providentially governing the history of the world, every blessing that the unbeliever receives in this life comes ultimately from the unmerited favor that God gives, including life and breath and existence. Let me ask you a question. Why should God let the wicked live one more minute? Amen. Right, he does everything. He does glorify himself. Amen. But, but the idea is, is there any favor or merit that they have merited in and of themselves by which God should show them one more minute of patience and forbearance? No, there's not. Therefore, whatever favor they get is an unmerited favor. That's why they call it common grace. It's a grace that is common to all men that God gives in sustaining their life by his providence. Amen? Okay. Well, we'll end with this scripture from Acts 17, verses 24 and following. Listen to how Paul describes this common grace of God, not only that, but God and his providence and in his purposes in the existence of mankind. He says, verse 24, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things, and he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. And there, how the scripture describes that God is providentially controlling human history, even giving all life and breath and everything else. Amen? Amen. Consider, if you will, what is it that God would grant sinners such favor? has to give them another minute of life. Amen? Consider 
all that God has done in Christ. It is an amazing thing. Um, Next week, we'll take up from this idea of common grace and move on to what it is that we possess as believers in Christ as results and benefits of the atonement. Shall we pray? God, our Father, Lord, we thank you. We are exceedingly thankful, God, for all that you have done for us in Christ. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to grow in our understanding. And Lord, in our appreciation for what you have done, may we worship you, God. May we ascribe worth and value to you, God. May you be our all in all. May you be our treasure, God. Lord, I pray that uh, as we learn of, of each of these marvelous things that you have done in Christ, may we treasure them in our hearts. May we treasure these scriptures that talk to us about how sufficient our salvation is and how glorious and wonderfully you have saved us, God. Oh, Lord, we praise you and we thank you for the precious blood of Jesus, our Savior. Now, Lord, we ask that you would bless the rest of our morning together as we worship with all your holy family. We thank you for the privilege that we have to gather here, the freedom that we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.